0: Welcome to tape number three of Gleanings in the Godhead, part two, Excellencies which pertain to God the Son as Christ by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources as well as our complete mail order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a pre-printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at with the word add in the subject line. And now to the reading of Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, which we find which we pray you find to be a great blessing, and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 The Person of Christ We enter with fear and trembling upon this high and holy subject. Christ's name is called Wonderful, Isaiah 9.6, and even the angels of God are commanded to worship him, Hebrews 1.6. There is no salvation apart from a true knowledge of Him. John seventeen three. Whosoever denieth the Son, either His true Godhead or His true and holy humanity, hath not the Father. First John two twenty three. They are thrice blessed to whom the Spirit of Truth communicates a supernatural revelation of the being of Christ. Matthew sixteen seventeen. It will lead them in the only path of wisdom and joy. For in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3 Until they are taken to be where he is and behold his supernal glory forever. John 17.24 An increasing apprehension of the truth concerning the person of Christ should be our constant aim. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 In view of such a divine declaration as this, it is both useless and impious for any man to attempt an explanation of the wondrous and unique person of the Lord Jesus. He cannot be fully comprehended by any infinite intelligence. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, Matthew 11.27. Nevertheless, it is our privilege to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. So too it is the duty of his servants to hold up the person of the God-man as revealed in holy scriptures, as well as to warn against errors which cloud his glory. The one born in Bethlehem's manger was the mighty God, Isaiah 9.6, Emmanuel, Matthew 1.23, the great God and our Savior, Titus 2.13. He is also the true man with a spirit, a soul, and a body, for these are essential to human nature. None could be real man without all three. Nevertheless, the humanity of Christ, that holy thing, Luke 1.35, is not a distinct person separate from his Godhead, for it never had a separate existence before taken into union with his deity. He is the God-man, yet one Lord, Ephesians four fifty five. As such, he was born, lived here in this world, died, rose again, ascended to heaven, and will continue thus for all eternity. As such, he is entirely unique, and the object of lasting wonder to all holy beings. The person of Christ is a composite one. Two separate natures are united in one peerless person. But they are not fused into each other. Instead, they remain distinct and different. The human nature is not divine, nor has it been intrinsically deified, for it possesses possesses none of the attributes of God. The humanity of Christ, absolutely and separately considered, is neither omnipotent, omniscient, nor omnipresent. On the other hand, his deity is not a creature, and has none of the properties which pertain to such. Taking... To himself a human nature did not affect any change in his divine being. It was a divine person who wedded to himself a holy humanity, and though his essential glory was partly veiled, yet it never ceased to be, nor did his divine attributes cease to function. As the God-man, Christ is the one mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5. He alone was fitted to stand between God and men and effect a reconciliation between them. It needs to be maintained that the two natures are united in the one person of Christ, but that each retains its separate properties, just as the soul and body of men do, though united. Thus, in his divine nature, Christ has nothing in common with us, nothing finite, derived, or dependent. But in his human nature he was made in all things, like to his brethren, brethren sin excepted. In that nature, he was born in time and did not exist from all eternity. He increased in knowledge and other endowments. In the one nature, he had a comprehensive knowledge of all things. In the other, he knew nothing but by communication or derivation. <coughs> Excuse me. In the one nature, he had an infinite and sovereign will. In the other, he had a creature will. Though not opposed to the divine will, its conformity to it was of the same kind that with with that in perfect creatures. The necessity for the two natures in the one person of our Savior is self-evident. It was fitting that the mediator should be both God and man, that he might partake of the nature of both parties and be a middle person between them, filling up the distance and bringing them near to each other. Only thus was he able to communicate his benefits to us, and only thus could he discharge our obligations. As Witsius, the Dutch theologian, 1690, pointed out, None but God could restore us to true liberty. If any creature could redeem us, we should be the peculiar property of that creature. But it is a manifest contradiction to be free and yet at the same time to be the servant of any creature. So, too, none but God could give us eternal life. Hence, the two are joined together. The true God and eternal life. 1 John 5.20 It was equally necessary that the Mediator be man. He was to enter our law place, be subject to the law, keep it, and merit by keeping it. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law. Galatians 4.4 4. Note the order. The order. He must first be made of a woman before he could be made under the law. But more, he had to endure the curse of the law, suffer its penalty. He was to be made sin for his people, and the wages of sin is death. But that was impossible to him until he took upon him a nature capable of mortality. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, Hebrews 2.14. Thus, the person of the God-man is unique. His birth had no precedent and his existence no analogy. He cannot be explained by referring him to a class, nor can he be illustrated by an example. The scriptures, while fully revealing all the elements of his person, yet never present in one formula, an exhaustive definition of that person, nor a connected statement of the elements which constitute it in the mutual relationships. The mystery is indeed great. How is it possible that the same person should be at the same time infinite and finite, infinite and helpless? He altogether transcends our understanding. How can two complete spirits coalesce in one person? How can two consciousnesses Two understandings, two memories, two wills constitute one person. No one can explain it, nor are we called upon to do so. Both natures act in concert in one person. All the attributes and acts of both natures are referred to one person. The same person who gave his life for the sheep possessed glory with the Father before the world was. This amazing personality does not center in his humanity, nor is it a compound one originated by the power of the Holy Spirit when he brought these two natures together in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It was not by adding manhood to Godhead that his personality was formed. The Trinity is eternal and unchangeable. A new person is not substituted for the second member of the Trinity. Neither is a fourth added. The person of Christ is just the eternal word, who in time, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the instrument of the virgin's womb, took a human nature, not at that time a man, but the seed of Abraham, into personal union with himself. The person is eternal and divine. His humanity was introduced into it. The center of his personality is always in the eternal and personal word uh, or Son of God. Though no analogy exists by which we may illustrate the mysterious person of Christ, there is a most remarkable type in Exodus 3, 2-6. The flame of fire in the midst of the bush was an emblem of the presence of God indwelling the man Christ Jesus. Observe that the one who appeared there... To Moses is termed first the angel of the Lord, which declares the relation of Christ to the Father, namely, the angel or messenger of the covenant. But secondly, this angel said unto Moses, I am the God of Abraham, that is, what he was absolutely in himself. The fire, emblem of him who is a consuming fire, placed itself in a bush, a thing of the earth, where it burned, yet the bush was not consumed. A remarkable foreshadowing this was of the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in Christ, Colossians 2.9. That this is the meaning of the type is clear when we read that the goodwill of him that dwelt in the bush, Deuteronomy 33.16. The great mystery of the Trinity is that one spirit should subsist eternally as three distinct persons. The mystery of the person of Christ is that two separate spirits divine, and human, should constitute but one person. The moment we deny the unity of this person, we enter the bogs of error. Christ is the God-man. The humanity of Christ was not absorbed by his deity, but preserves its own characteristics. Scripture does not hesitate to say Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Luke 2.52 Christ is both infinite and finite self-sufficient and dependent at the same time because his person embraces two different natures, the divine and the human. In the Incarnation, the second person of the Trinity established a personal union between himself and a human spirit, soul and body. His two natures remain and remain distinct and their properties or active powers are inseparable from each other respectively quote from A.A. A. Hodge The union between them is not mechanical as that between oxygen and nitrogen is in our air neither is it chemical as between oxygen and hydrogen when water is formed neither is it organic as that subsisting between our hearts and brains but it is a union more intimate more profound and more mysterious than any of these it is personal If we cannot understand the nature of the simpler unions, why should we complain? Because we cannot understand the nature of the most profound of the all unions. Chapter 6 The Subsistence of Christ The ground we now tread upon is quite unknown even to the majority of God's people, so great has been the spiritual and theological deterioration of the last century. Though it was familiar to the better-taught saints of the Puritans' times and of those who followed, that the Son of God is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, and that nearly two thousand years ago the Word became flesh and was made in the likeness of men, is still held firmly and will be by all truly regenerated souls. That it is the union of the divine and human natures in his wondrous person which fits him for his mediatorial office is also apprehended more or less clearly. But that is about as far as the light of nearly all Christians can take them, that the God-man subsisted in heaven before the world was in a blessed truth, is a blessed truth, which has been lost to the last few generations. A thoughtful reader who ponders a, a verse such as John six sixty two must surely be puzzled. What and if ye sh- shall seek the Son of Man, see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before. Mark it well that our Redeemer there spoke of himself not as the Son before he became incarnate. But ignorant as we may be of this precious truth, Old Testament saints were instructed therein, as evident from Psalm eighty, where Asaph prays. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the Son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. Verse 17. Yes, the man Christ Jesus, taken into union with himself by the second person of the Trinity, subsisted before the Father from all eternity, and was the object of the Old Testament saints' faith. When first presented, the last statement appears to be mysticism run a wild, or downright heresy. It would be, if we had said that the soul and body of the Son of Man had any existence before he was born at Bethlehem. But this is not what Scripture sa- uh, teaches. What the written word affirms is that the Mediator, Christ in his two natures, had a real subsistence before God from all eternity. First, he was foreordained before the foundation of the world, 1 Peter one twenty. He was chosen by God to be the head of the whole election of grace. See Isaiah 42.1. But more, it was not only purposed by God that the Mediator, the man Christ Jesus wedded to the eternal word, John one, 1 and 14, should have a historical existence when the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, 4, had arrived, but he had an actual subsistence before him long before that. But how could this be? In seeking to answer, it will help us to contemplate something which, though not strictly analogous, on a lower plane serves to illustrate the principle. Hebrews 11.1 records that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The Greek word for substance more properly signifies a real subsistence. It is opposed to what is only an image of the imagination. It is the antithesis of fantasy. Faith gives a real subsistence in the mind and heart of things which are yet to be, so that they are enjoyed now and their power is experienced in the soul. Faith lays hold of the things God has promised so that they become actually present. If faith possesses the power to add reality to what as yet has no historical actuality, if faith can enjoy in the present what that whose existence is yet future, how much more was God able to give the Mediator a covenant subsistence endless ages be- before he was born? In consequence, Christ was the Son of Man in heaven secretly before God before he became the Son of Man openly in this world. As Christ declared of his Father in the language of prophecy, In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. Isaiah 49.2 Note that the verses which follow refer to the everlasting covenant. The quiver of God is a fine expression to denote the secrecy and security in which the purpose of God was concealed. Many passages speak of this wondrous subject. Perhaps the clearest and the one with the most detail is Proverbs 8. The term wisdom, verse 12, is one of the names of Christ. See 1 Corinthians 1.24. That wisdom has reference to a person is clear, verse 17, and to a divine person, verse 15. The whole passage, verses 13 to 36, has Christ in view but in what character has not been clearly discerned. While it is evident that what is said, verses 15 and 16 and 32 to 36, could only apply to a divine person, it should be equally plain that some of the terms, verses 23 and 24 and following, cannot be predicated of the Son of God. Contemplated only as co-eternal and co-equal with the Father, it could not be said that Christ was ever brought forth. From all the terms used in Proverbs 813 to 36 it should be apparent that some are impossible to understand of Christ's deity separately considered, as others of them cannot be of his humanity. But the difficulties disappear once we see that the whole passage contemplates the Mediator, the God-man and his two natures. The man Christ Jesus, as united to the second person of the Godhead, was possessed verse 22, by the triune God from all eternity, let us note some things about this marvelous passage. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old, verse 22. The speaker is the mediator who had a covenant subsistence before God, ere the universe came into being. The man Christ Jesus, taken into union with the eternal Son of of God, was the beginning of the triune God's way, it is difficult to speak of eternal matters at first, second, and third, yet God set them forth in the scriptures for us, and it is permissible to use such distinctions to aid our understanding. The first act or counsel of God had respect to the man Christ Jesus. He was appointed to be not only the head of his church, but also the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1.15. The predestination of the man Christ Jesus unto the grace of divine union and glory was the first of God's decrees. In the head of the book, it was written of Him. Hebrews ten seven. Compare Isaiah forty two one and Revelation thirteen eight. The person of the God man mediator was the foundation of all the divine councils. Compare Ephesians three eleven and one. 9 to 10 He was ordained to be the cornerstone on which all creation was to rest as such the triune jehovah possessed or embraced him as a treasury in which all the divine counsels were laid up as an efficient agent for the execution of all his works as such he is both the wisdom of god and the power of god executively being a perfect vehicle through which to express himself. As such, he was the beginning of God's ways. The way of God signifies the outworking of his eternal decrees, the accomplishing of his purposes by wise and holy dispensations. Compare Isaiah 55, 8-9. I was set up from everlasting. Verse 23. This could not be spoken of the Son himself, for as God he was not capable of being set up. Yet how could he be set up as the godman yet how could he be set up as the godman mediator by mediatorial settlement by covenant constitution by divine subsistence before the mind of God from the womb of eternity in the council of peace zechariah 6:13 before all worlds Christ Jesus was in his official character set up Before God planned to create any creature, he first set up Christ as the great archetype and original. There was an order in God's counsels as well as creation, and Christ had the preeminence in all things. The Hebrew verb for set up is anointed and should have been so translated. The reference is to the appointing and investing of Christ with a mediatorial office which was done in the everlasting covenant. All the glory our Lord possesses as mediator was then granted to him on the condition of his obedience and sufferings. Therefore, when he finished his work, he prayed, Glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. John 7.5 The glory which is there expressly in view is that exalted place which had been given to him as the head of all creation, In the timeless transactions of the everlasting covenant, in the unique honor which had been accorded him as the beginning of God's way, the firstborn of all creation, he had this glory. For the open manifestation of it, it, he now prayed, answered at his accession. Ascension, excuse me. When there was no depths I was brought forth verse 24 brought forth out of the womb of God's decrees brought forth into covenant subsistence before the divine mind brought forth as the image of the invisible God brought forth as the man Christ Jesus after whose likeness Adam was created though Adam was the first man by open manifestation on earth Christ had the priority as he secretly subsisted in heaven Adam was created in the image and in the likeness of Christ, as he actually but secretly subsisted in the person of the Son of God, who in the fullness of time was born openly. Then I was by him as one brought up with him. Verse 30. Jesennius says that the Hebrew verb here is connected with one which means to prop, stay, sustain, and hence, such as one may safely lean on. It is rendered nurse in Ruth 4.16 and 2 Samuel 4.4. 4. As men commit their children to a nurse to cherish and train, so God committed His counsels to Christ. The Hebrew word for brought up also signifies a master builder. The Revised Version says, Christ took the fabric of the universe upon himself to contrive the framing of it with the most exquisite skill. It is akin to the Hebrew word Amen, which has the same letters as the verb to which Jacinius refers, only with different vowel points. How blessedly it describes him who could be relied upon to carry out the Father's purposes And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Verse 30. Quoting John Owen, It is not absolutely the mutual eternal delight of the Father and Son, arising from the perfection of the same divine excellency in each person that is intended, but respect is plainly had unto the counsels of God concerning the salvation of mankind by him who is his wisdom and power unto that end. The council of peace was between Jehovah and the Branch, Zechariah 6:13, or the Father and the Son, as He was to become incarnate. For therein was He foreordained before the foundation of the world, 1 Peter 1:20, namely, to be a Savior and deliverer, by whom all the counsels of God were to be accomplished, and this by His own will and concurrence with the Father. And such a foundation was laid of the salvation of the church and those counsels of God as transacted between the Father and the Son that it is said in Titus 1.2 eternal life was promised before the world began. End quote. This ends the reading of Tape 3 of Part 2 of the Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Part 2 of the Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A-Z author listings. Please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan bookshelf CD sets. If you visit our website at swrb.com, these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.